Welcome to the Black Psychologist Podcast, where we have conversations and give insight into human behavior and promote mental health wellness. I'm Dr. Kyle Osborne, and with my co-host, Dr. Jason Coleman, we'll discuss health topics, everyday life issues, and try to give you a better understanding of yourself, other people, and the world around you. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully you'll leave with some information that'll have you live in your best healthy life. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. All right, and welcome back to the Black Psychologist Podcast, episode 18. We are here. We appreciate everybody tuning in and watching and listening and all of the above, all of those things. We appreciate everybody's support. Um, I am one half of your humble and gracious host and clinician here for your listening pleasures. I am Dr. Kyle Osborne, and of course, I am never, ever, ever here by myself. I'm here with my guy, all right? You know something special about this guy because he fears no man. He fears no beast. He fears no evil. The one and only Dr. Jason Coleman. How are you, good brother? I'm good, man. I'm good, man. Good week. You know, it's uh, sun is shining or it's going down, but, you know, it's a good, uh, good weather out here in Philly today, so nothing to complain about. What's going on on your side? Nothing, man. Like you said, we are uh, closing out another week. Um, yeah, we begin the summer. I'm good. Feeling good. Feeling happy that, you know, we're wrapping things up for the week. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good and happy with that. Yep, definitely. Um, Before we get into it, just want to thank everybody for the support. Um, It's been great, especially the last couple of weeks um, with people sending in videos and, you know, um, <clears throat> suggestions for questions for us to talk about. So really appreciate appreciate it so thank you for that and please continue to share the videos um like subscribe and leave the comments like we appreciate it absolutely and uh speaking of which we had uh one of our viewers and um supporters view in and email us uh so we're gonna pull that question up and get to that good morning my question that i wanted to ask everyone is when somebody's seeking therapy, what is the best way that they can start to build that relationship with their therapist? Because a lot of times people go to therapy and they don't feel that connection. And I think it's really important to have that conversation about what can I do to either communicate with the therapist that I've chosen because it's the only option I have, or you know, when, when do I need to move on to another therapist? So that's my question. Good morning. All right, cool. It's a good question. Very good question. All right, what you got, Jack? Um, the first thing I would say is that first, like first and foremost, right, the onus or, the, uh, you know, um, the responsibility to kind of build rapport is on the therapist initially. So, you know, as a patient or as a client walking in, you know, it is on us, right? We're supposed to be able to, you know, talk to our patient, fill our patient out, try to find those ways where we can kind of build that rapport and build that relationship, build that trust, um, and, you know, slowly kind of build the relationship. So that's that's first and foremost, right? It's on us. Mm-hmm. Now, if, you know, a patient or a client starts feeling like that connection isn't there, to me, I think this is where, like, patient empowerment, client empowerment comes in, right? Um, 
I always try to empower my clients to ask me questions that I think that they might hesitate to ask me, right? Meaning like terminology I might use that, that you know, in an innocent way that they might not be comfortable with, right? Like, um, or different things. So my, my, my point is um, you have to be comfortable being able to say that, right? Saying like, listen, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, the chemistry is off, the connection is off and one or two things should happen, right? Um, the therapist should kind of pause, fall back for lack of a better term and, and try to figure out some ways to build that relationship, right? Um, mm -hmm. And kind of focus less on the therapy in the moment and more on kind of the person's life and trying to get to know a little bit more about what makes them tick for lack of a better uh, term. Um, term. And if that still isn't sufficient, then clients have to understand that they have the right to ask a therapist to refer them to someone else, right? Um, and it's our responsibility not to get defensive, um, but to find that person or help that person through that, to, you know, to find more services. So that's what I would say. Yeah, totally. I think um, first and foremost, we have to promote that, that collaborative environment, because right? that's what the relationship is. The relationship is collaborative and our patient, our client, whatever term you would like to use, they should feel free to say whatever they want in, in treatment. You know, they should be able to point things out and say, hey, you know, whether things are going well, and they should also be able to say, hey, you know what, I feel like, um, you know, things aren't going so well, or I'm having some issues with this, or I don't, you know, there are some things that are coming up in our relationship. So that's first and foremost, is that we have to be able to promote that, that collaborative and welcoming environment and comfortable environment because that's based that's the whole structure of what the therapeutic relationship and treatment is based out of if that person or the client if you don't feel comfortable then that's going to lead to a whole host of issues um absolutely something i always and, and you mentioned this also is something that we try to encourage and always promote uh is that yeah let us know if something isn't, isn't going right, right? If you feel off, if you feel like treatment is not going in a direction where you feel like it's helpful, then yeah, totally call us out on it. Like you, you know, you shouldn't be hurting our feelings, right? You're not, you know, that's, that's what we got into this position and this field to do is to make sure we don't want treatment to be more stressful. Like the young lady mentioned in, um, in the clip is that some folks don't have the ability to have a variety or having um, more options of therapists. Depending on where you're located, you may only be restricted to um, a counselor or a therapist, or maybe possibly due to insurance restrictions, you may only be, you know, have a limited, you know, limited options for you to uh, seek treatment. So it's really imperative that um, if something is not going right, if the flow is off or if the comfort level is off, or if you feel like you're not making progress in treatment, absolutely let the clinician, um, know, because you know what, this is also an opportunity for us to switch gears and say, okay, maybe somewhere along the lines, things got a little stale and that can happen, right? That can happen depending on how long you've been seeing, you know, a therapist or a psychologist, things can get a little stale or maybe you run out of things to talk about or issues. So that's an opportunity for you and the clinician to say, hey, you know what, let's get back on track. Let's reevaluate things. Or maybe it's a situation where you decrease. Maybe you don't need to see the clinician as often. Maybe you go from weekly to biweekly or monthly or, or what have you. So always speak up. 
you know, you're not going to hurt our feelings. If you do hurt our feelings or that clinician becomes defensive, like you said, Jay, then that's a whole other issue entirely. Right. That's definitely a red flag about that relationship. However, feel free to say that, you know, things have gotten a little stale or there's something off or something that you want to fix. You know, that's an opportunity for us to reevaluate in the same way as, you know, usually clinicians. I can't speak for every clinician, but we should be checking in with you anyway. Just as as a therapist, we should be checking in and saying, hey, how are things going? How are the flow of treatment? You know, we should be checking in and we definitely want you to feel free to let us know if things are going well and then also if things aren't going well. I mean, I, you know, I got to agree with that. I don't, I don't really have much to add, except, you know, it's our responsibility, you know, to make the adjustment. Right. Um, so whether that's kind of reevaluating what we're doing, whether that's adjusting time, you know, the frequency that you come to therapy or ultimately finding somebody else for you that might be more appropriate, you know, the responsibility is on us. So, um, and, you know, listen, use technology, right? So everybody might not be as comfortable speaking up about it. Um, you know, <clears throat> you might be able to send an email, write a note, you know, um, anything to kind of get your message across to the therapist, um, you know, and let them facilitate or take it from there or make the adjustment. Absolutely. So uh, really good question. Appreciate that. Um, so guys, yeah, absolutely. Continue to send in questions because, you know, you never know the question that you're asking or that you're thinking of could also be the same question that another viewer or maybe a family member or someone else um, has about it. So and it's, you know, Jay and I will always continue to say that the relationship is very, very important in order for treatment to take place, in order for treatment to progress. The relationship is very important. So um, continue to send your questions in. So we appreciate that young lady sending a question in and support and uh, keep them flowing through with the, the, the blackpsychologist.com uh, at, at Gmail. All right, guys, so um, we appreciate that. Keep pushing it through. All right, so speaking of messages, all right, so a message came out earlier this week as far as in the sports world. Uh, Las Vegas Raiders defensive end Carl Nassib on uh, earlier this week on Monday uh, became the first active NFL player to come out as gay. I'm going to read a little uh, from his post. He announced it um, on Instagram. He said, what's up, people? I'm at my house here in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I wanted to take a quick moment to say that I'm gay. I've been meaning to do this for a while now. I but I finally feel comfortable enough to get it off my chest. I finally have the best of my, my best life. Um, I've got the best family, friends, and job a guy can ask for. I'm a pretty private person, so I hope you guys know that I'm not doing this for attention. I just think that representation and visibility are so important. I actually hope that like one day videos like this and the whole coming out process are not necessary. But until then, I'm going to do my part and do my best to cultivate a culture that's accepting that's compassionate, and I'm going to start by donating $100,000 to the Trevor Project. For those that aren't aware of what the Trevor Project is, the Trevor Project provides crisis intervention and suicide prevention services to the LGBTQ uh, community. Jay, what did you think about this when you saw this coming through on ESPN and all the other different news outlets? Um, honestly, the only thing that kind of surprised me about it, I was surprised, okay? But the only thing that really surprised me about it was that like it kind of hasn't happened already, um, and what I what I mean by that is like, you know, I'm certain he's not the only you know gay player in the NFL, right? Mm -hmm. I'm certain. 
So um, it was kind of one of those things that I guess, you know, like my privilege as a homosexual, uh, heterosexual male, excuse me, my privilege as a heterosexual <laughs> male. Ooh. <laughs> Is that a Freudian slip? Yo, look, don't, even, don't even edit that out. Or we're going to leave that in. Absolutely. Right. And that's why that's funny. Right. Because my privilege as a as a heterosexual male, I kind of over, overlook that. You know what I'm saying? Entirely, mm-hmm. man. Um, so that's the, the was the surprising part about it. Right. Other than that, I mean, obviously, um, you know, I was kind of trying to look beneath the surface about some of the things he was talking about, right? Some of the feelings that he was talking about in terms of it being scary, you know, being a difficult process, him feeling alone, right? Um, and then always, also, us as clinicians, I always come back to what, you know, the impact might be in terms of somebody's mental health, you know, um, if they have to live kind of like isolated and hiding, you know, their lifestyle, their identity, totally. right? So, um, it kind of brought me back to what he said when he said representation and visibility is important. And I, I think that's that was what made me kind of most proud of, of, of what he did, um, because I know that there's, you know, kids and teenagers and, you know, you know, probably young men and women older and younger than him, you know, that are going to get confidence from what he said. Right. And ultimately, it may cause them to, to either feel supported, you know, or if they feel unsupported, to not do something drastic to, to hurt themselves, you know, ultimately I'm going to go to the extreme, you know, because, you know, obviously loss of life is, is probably the worst thing we could have. So um, I was definitely, you know, proud. And I think the, the important part was, you know, when he said uh, representation and visibility are important, right. Um, you know, I, I think that was the most important and kind of profound part of the statement. So what did you think? Um, first I, I, you know, I said, good for him. You know, this is, this is really dope for him and his mental and emotional well-being. Um, I think, you know, he's humanizing an issue that needed to be humanizing, especially in that particular environment. Like I can only imagine what it's been like or how difficult it's been for him to be a closeted NFL player and, you know, in that, that type of like environment, like there are so many different things that make it challenging for, you know, him to come out in football because football is a very masculine sport, right? When you think of football, you think of, you know, it's rough, it's tough. It's a very masculine sport and being gay in that environment, um, which is embedded in homophobia, I can only imagine it's not easy, right? Cause like you right. said, I'm sure it's not the only um, he's not the only player that that's been dealing with this. And a lot of the other players um, came out after they retired. Right? right. I mean, I know we had Michael Sam, however, Michael Sam a few years ago, never actually got an opportunity to play like a single down in the NFL. He came out during the draft area and which was big also. Right. I feel like that was, um, you know, a great newsworthy story, but however, he wasn't actually, active in the league because he never got a chance to actually play for a team. Um, but this is, this is big. Like I'm, I'm, I'm happy for him because he no longer has to live, you know, that double life. And so um, this is going to be, this is an enormous, I think, shift for the, for that NFL culture. Like I'm hoping that this continues to usher in um, 
a new culture for them, you know, just for the NFL period. And it seems like the NFL has been supportive. Uh, you know, I know the league put out a statement. Um, I know he's gotten uh, via social media. A lot of other players have reached out in their support. Um, so I'm happy for him. Like he says that he's, you know, he's in a good place mentally and emotionally where he has the family support. He has, you know, a good, a, a good job, all these other different things that he felt comfortable enough for him to, to come out and make this decision and be public with it. The one thing that I was thinking about, right? Um, like he said, he was like, I agonized over this decision for 15 years, right? And obviously he's made it to the highest level in terms of sports, you know, being in the NFL. Yeah. So obviously I'm speculating about his experience at this part, right? But you, I don't know if you played football. I played football for a whole bunch of years, right? Yeah. And yeah. and I, I wrestled different, different sports like that. The only reason why I'm bringing it up is because you can just imagine you know, what it would be like in terms of what he has probably heard in the locker room, on the field, in terms of like slurs and all, in terms of the environment, you know what I mean? Environment. Um, so that's why I say, when we talk about like, talk about like that he might be experiencing, might like, be experiencing like isolation, feeling, you know, alone and all of those things. That, that's why it's, it's very important. You know, you know what I mean? Um, because, 15 years, you know what I mean? To have to live, you know, kind of in a closet. And then also your environment might be kind of hostile to your lifestyle. You know what I mean? So um, just that combination is, you know, it's crazy. And one thing I kind of wanted to ask you about is um, Warren Moon's quote, where he was saying, you know, he acknowledged that he played with, you know, gay players, you know, that were not comfortable coming out. Right. Um, But, Mm-hmm. I mean, he knew they were, were gay, or I guess he had a, a sense that they were gay. I, I don't know, but he said that he he knew. So what did what did you think about that? Um, because again, it's one of these things where it's like um, you would assume, you know, of course. But I, you know, my biggest again, my biggest surprise was that it took this long, you know. But you then you have people like Warren Moon saying it's fairly regular. You know what I mean? They, you know, people are just closeted, but it's fairly regular. So what what did you think? I think it's associated with the fear. I think he, you know, some people maybe know, um, given whatever their experience is with that community, or like you said, whether it's intuition or, you know, whatever Warren Mood had in me, I'm sure other players, maybe they know that and say, you know what, that person, it does, you know, subscribe to that particular lifestyle or orientation. But of course, you know, Warren Moon is going to be, I guess, respectful. And he's just like, hey, that's that person's business. But I think it's a it's associated with a lot of fear. Like he, 15 years, he's been living, you know, as a closeted figure, whether that was through high school football, Penn state football, he was, you know, getting drafted and coming into the league. Like you said, it's a very, you know, like you said, the, the jokes and the slurs and other different things that are, are said on a daily, like it is, it's a homo, it's a homophobia environment, you know, homophobic environment. And, just the fear that's associated with coming out in that environment, you know, for the reason that there's a reason why retired players didn't come out, you know, until they were retired, you know, it's that, you know, fearing that they're going to lose that camaraderie, right? What if, what happens if you come out and then players that you usually held the line with dudes that you bled with and, and played through and sweat with the dude that you would, you know, fight for now all of a sudden, due to maybe their values or maybe their preconceived notions of what, you know, uh, that community is all of a sudden, what if that disappears, right? What if that camaraderie all of a sudden 
is not there anymore. More importantly, what about if you lose your job, right? What if you are, you know, blackballed or what if you lose endorsements? What if you lose your job? I mean, you got to think about it, like in addition to the abandonment piece, you know, there's a potentially like losing your career is probably the most prominent thing that I imagine he was concerned for. I mean, I don't know him, but I can imagine, you know, being blackballed and losing your career. So I can see how Warren Moon said he probably knew individuals or maybe figured that some were, but they didn't come out due to that fear. I mean, that that's realistic. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's shocking, but then at the same time, not surprising that someone, you know, waited this long or players haven't come out until they retired just so, you know, they don't get that, that sense of abandonment and then they don't lose the number one thing that's given their money, their, their source of income. I mean, I listen, I got to agree, um, you know, in terms of we all know in terms of the culture, the NFL football, you know, it's that warrior mentality. Um, and then when we just talk about like the idea of like masculinity within that world, you know, like inclusiveness when it comes to sexual identity doesn't fit in there. You know, it just doesn't. You know what I mean? Right. Um for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, for we, you could talk about it in terms of slurs. You could talk about it in terms of you know, people's views, narrow-minded or not, um, it may impact a large percentage of those of those guys in terms of how they interact, right? In the locker room and outside, you know? Um, so I could see why, you know, that would cause him to hesitate. Um, I just, you know, I'm, you know, anxious to see how this impacts kind of, you know, the culture in terms of like football as a whole, right? Because now, he has come out. So they are aware now. Right. So I wonder if everything, you know, wildfire starts with one match. Right. So I uh, sometimes. Right. So I wonder how this is going to impact the Raiders locker room first, you know, um, because what I'm sure about is, you know, um, that locker room today isn't the same as it, it, that environment probably isn't the same as it was yesterday, you know. Um, I would assume, you know what I mean? Just in terms of some of the things that are that regularly go on in some of those locker rooms. Once you know that and that's your brother and that's your you're going to they're going to be more. Everybody in that locker room is aware now. So I wonder just how it changes the culture in the locker room, how they interact on the field. You know, I'm not saying in a bad way. I just mean like immediately in terms of language, all of those things that are used because he's there. You know what I mean? That's so will other players start enforcing that? Like, don't, don't talk like that. You know what I mean? Or or will they not care, right? Will it will it turn into a situation like, um, what was the guy that played for the uh, 49ers? Um, and he ended up, uh, John Martin, I think, for the, with oh, the bully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it, it could go the other way, right? Now, I saw a lot of players showing support, you know? Um, showing a lot, a lot of players showing support. But... Come on, man. We've heard a lot. Think about Kevin Garnett, some of the things he said, right? We've talked about that, right? So if you're a football player on the other side, you know, what are what potentially what, what how many ways could this go? You know? So I'm just interested to see. Um, but you know, nevertheless, it's a it's a good story. Um, and you know, you gotta kind of, you know, be proud of him for having the courage to, you know, put this on his back on that stage. <laughs> I was thinking even outside of football, right? Because you have the impact, like you talked about, on the field and in the locker room, and then also what could be used against him with the opposing team, 
right? Now that they have this information, so you have awareness. And unfortunately, people who have this information now could possibly try to use it against him to get in his head on the field because people are going to use any type of competitive edge, right? So you got the environment in the field with the NFL, but I also feel like this could be an enormous cultural change just even on a, on a wider level. Because if you look at it, you know, he isn't, you know, kind of like, he doesn't really correlate with that general stereotype of the stereotypical gay man, right? It kind of breaks the physical stereotype. He's 6'7", 275. Right. So he's not your typical stereotype of what people would consider like in, in social media or in the popular media of what a gay man looks like. So I'm also, I think that also is impacted, which is a good thing because again, you know, unfortunately movies, TV, media has kind of put like someone, a gay man has to be, of a certain type of physical trait, right? He has to have certain characteristics, flamboyant, all these other different things that are stereotypes. And what he personifies is that, you know what? Just like any type of community, people come in all different types of, you know, types of shapes, sizes, you know, backgrounds, all different, different things. So I was even thinking about that type of, you know, cultural change and shift that he's bringing or he's ushering in also. So, um, yeah, I think it's good. Um, you know, I hope that, you know, this, it does get to a point that, you know, this isn't always a news story, but right now, you know, coming out as gay is going to continue to be newsworthy or a big deal for athletes until it's a regular occurrence. So, um, but I'm, I'm hoping, like you mentioned, that this does, um, you know, make people, other people more comfortable, you know, to come out yeah. while they're playing and active. So it does start to shift that culture. So we'll see. But this was this was a, this was a great story and, and like really good for him and his his emotional and mental well being. Yeah. All right. So moving forward. All right. So something that's been in the news recently has been the phrase and term culture appropriation. All right. So recently, or uh, Michael B. Jordan has recently, he launched a, a line of rum called um, Jove, uh, but quickly drew complaints of cultural appropriation because, it, you know, that term reportedly refers to both the Creole French term meeting Daybreak and its annual festival, uh, which is held in Trinidad and Tobago. Justin Bieber earlier this year had been accused of cultural appropriation when he revealed the new dreadlock hairstyle on Instagram. Um, even as recently, I think as last week, uh, rapper Remy Ma, she was accused of cultural appropriation uh, recently at her birthday party where she shared pictures of herself and others that were in attendance. They were wearing uh, kimonos, the Japanese themed decor, and they were wearing the uh, the traditional casa hats. And I, I hope I'm pronouncing that. If not, they'll probably come for me. Um, and Bruno Mars, right? Bruno Mars has historically been accused of cultural appropriation for years. So um, for you, when you when you hear cultural appropriation, you in some of these examples that I mentioned, along with others, you know, what comes to mind and, and what's been your takeaway with it? I, I mean, listen, this is a this this discussion has a lot of layers. Yep. And that, that's the first thing I think before I say anything. We got to understand that this this discussion has a lot of layers right now. Mm -hmm. First, I think the important thing is, is like, think about what you said, what the definition of it is. Right. 
The unacknowledged, inappropriate adoption of customs, practices, ideas of one people or another by a member of another group, typically more dominant people or society, right? So that could be a lot of things, you know what I mean? Um, but I, I think people have to understand why people are angry, first of all, right? So when you look at somebody like Justin Bieber, let's talk about that first, right? Go for it. Why people are angry. The, the reason why people are angry is because we have double standards and there's an imbalance of power, right? And I'm going to say it again. This is a very layered discussion. But if we're talking about this, people are angry at George, Justin Bieber because... Okay, Justin Bieber puts, puts dreads in his hair. You know, I get it. Some people are going to be like, it's just hair, right? But for years and years, right, we go back, we, we, we're in this fight, me, me too, at least 30, 40, 50 years for some people, Black women in particular, right, with natural hair being terminated from their positions of employment, not being offered positions of employment, right, being forced to cut their hair, being insulted in interviews, right? Um, and then you have a you know a person of of privilege you know um, who adopts the hairstyle and is lifted up because of it right so that's why people are angry right so that's why people are going to be angry when they see Kim K and cornrows when they see certain images that's what's going to make them angry because in their communities you know some of these hairstyles you know they they obviously we you know they go back to people of all types in terms of the African diaspora you know what I mean but these are, you know, hairstyles and things that are salient to our identity, to who we are, right? And you're talking about marginalized people who have at different times have been reduced to nothing but what they are, right? What they eat, what they what they can create themselves. Hair, right? Style, food, music, right? So these this is what makes us, you know, the red dots in a sea of black, the black dot in a sea of in, in a sea of white, right? So that's why people are angry, right? Yeah. Now, when you start talking about the individual examples, it's important to take them individually because some of them have substance and some of them are ridiculous. I'm just, that's my humble opinion, right? So then we can start to talk about them individually, but I think it's important to define what it is and define like why people are angry, right? Because in this article, they said an example of, of, of cultural appropriation Right. Or an, an appropriate example was anytime if you make coffee with an Italian espresso machine, that's cultural appropriation, according to this article. That's a ridiculous example. Mm -hmm. Right. So hey, people, again, I don't want people like in the comments or different places to raise the ridiculous example, because I'm not talking about the ridiculous example. What makes people angry when they see Justin Bieber is the fact that when I went for my. I had people telling me when I went to Howard, right? Better cut them dreads off. You ain't never going to be able to be a doctor, right? Not not when I got there, but before I went, right? right. When I went for my 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 uh, doctoral interview, I had people telling me, you're going to cut your dreads off? For what? I wouldn't want to do this without dreads. You understand what I mean? So these were the things that were on my mind in the interview. Is my hair in the right place? Is my hair going to be out of place? Right. I had to go get my head done the day before. Right. Why? Because I didn't want it to look too natural and frizzy because I didn't want that to impact them thinking I wasn't professional. You know, so Justin Bieber is doing it for fun. You understand what I'm saying? 
So when we go and we buy all these hair care products and we do all these things and 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 our you know black women, you know, sisters of color have to do all these things for their to their hair. Sometimes they do it for beauty because that, that's what they like, and sometimes they do it because of the industry that they're in, right? And that is why people are angry. So I'm gonna let you comment on it, but I think it's important to define the conversation. No, I'm a, I'm a highlight and piggyback off of what you said because it's important that it's you have to look at them in context, right? You have, there's a context of the cultural appropriation. It's very important whether people or whether you really want to deem something as cultural appropriate or not, right? So it's a situation where you know, like you mentioned, the hair. So cornrows, dreads, anything of that nature. You know, a person of color again. We're gonna. We can be possibly discriminated against because of that hairstyle, and it's it relates to our culture. Now you have someone like Justin Bieber that's a part of the dominant group, and he can get away with appropriating this hairstyle and making it trendy, right? He can make it popular. He can make it right without, and he never understands the experience that you know that contributed to that culture, that hairstyle, that invention to the hairstyle in the first place. So that's where I feel like. You know, we it really, like you said, it's an individual situation and we also have to look at it in context, right? There's a big difference between, you know, cultural appreciation and culture appropriation. Because I look at it like culture appropriation is really like the social equivalent of plagiarism with like an added little spice or added ingredient of uh, denigration. So I feel like before you go off, and again, I don't know Justin Bieber and what motivated him to do so. Maybe he thought it was cool. Again, I feel like when you do these things, when you see something that belongs to a different culture, to a different ethnicity, race, what or what have you, um, religion, all these other different things, it's like, hey, it really would probably be in your best interest to educate yourself about what you're trying to display or you're possibly going to offend. Like you said, right? If you go to, if you're eating Indian food at an authentic Indian restaurant, you know, or you're eating Indian food, you make Indian food, I don't feel, to me, I don't believe that to be cultural appropriation. Like you said, right? You're, 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 you're enjoying, whether it be, like you said, the coffee or whether it be the food, you know, that's, for me, I would kind of more place that in the category of appreciation of that culture because, you know, right. it's a food that stems or is traditionally from that culture or that ethnicity and you're appreciating it. You're, you know, paying the money to eat it or dine at the restaurant or whatever situation, like learning martial arts with an instructor and then you understanding the, the cultural significance and impact. I don't feel like if you go out and you practice martial arts or Kung Fu or what have you, like, I don't feel like that would be cultural appropriation. Right. Because I feel like that's more in the appreciation aspect. So I feel like it's really important that you educate yourself. And then two, in context. Right. There's a huge different context of how each individual situation is, you know, is taken into consideration. You know, but right, I also so, at it. Go ahead. no, go ahead. I want you to finish your thought. No, I was just thinking, like you said, like music, right. Hair, all these different things, makeup, tattoos wellness practices of what we're going to talk about in, in the next topic, you know, all of these things are targeted items of cultural appropriation, right? So especially like when we talk about music, we talked about Bruno Mars, right? We talked about not saying that he's, you know, um, is, you know, a, you know, part of the cultural appropriation, but historically music where you talk about like rock and roll, right? You mm -hmm. have rock and roll and you have people, the majority of white people say that they invented that. But we know that it was a derivative off of black musicians who never received credit. 
Right. So, you know, when you take and you look at these other different things, even something as simple as voguing, right? Voguing was made popular by like Madonna in the 90s. Right. But that stemmed from or was pioneered by black and Latino communities in gay clubs, right? In that community. So again, it's that, okay, taking something and it's cool and trendy, but not understanding the cultural significance and you're benefiting off of it. Go ahead. All right. So I think we flushed it out pretty well. Now I'm going to take this in another direction. Right. All right. And I wanted to wait before. I... Now this is where it gets murky. And I just wanted to ask you the question. When money gets involved, right. Does it change your view? Meaning like who's getting paid? Because when I started thinking about this, I was like, okay, everybody's upset at Justin Bieber. And then it made me start thinking about, because I always, what's always in the news is like when you see like a, a white model or somebody with like cornrows or like they go to like Jamaica or go somewhere and they get the braids or something like that. That's always the traditional example of cultural appropriation, right? Right. So does it change your view? Because I started thinking about it and I'm like, okay, people say that and they always say that, but I travel a lot, right? Or fairly. So when you go to other countries, you know, there uh, people are always selling like traditional clothing items, right? If mm-hmm. you go to Africa, if you go to Mexico, if you go to di- different places in the Caribbean, people are always selling traditional dress, right? And the people mm-hmm. that are selling that usually is, is little stands and mom and pop shops. And this these are people in the community that this is how they make their money. It's how they support their family through tourists, right? Mm-hmm. The same thing with the braids. Right. You got people in these different countries. That's their stand. Right. So Caucasian people come, people from different cultures. They want them to get their braids done. They, they, you're paying it. They, they put money in their pockets, food in their stomach. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's money that's that's going from the dominant culture into black pockets. Right. So are, is it a little hypocritical to then that person then buys the dress and now they can't wear it or they buy the, or they get the braids and then they're on the front of the newspaper. And in their mind, maybe in their mind, that's why I'm just asking the question, does it change your view? Cause in their mind, maybe they, they're like, well, I like the braids and I'm here, I'm enjoying the experience, right? I'm immersing myself. Right. But then people are ridiculed for it. So does it change your mind if, okay. So, so if, if the dom, if people say, all right, we won't do that anymore. So all of those, Oh, where all of those people, all of that, those income streams go away now. Nobody's going to wear traditionally African clothing if they're not African. Nobody's going to go buy anything traditionally Mexican if they're not. See where I'm going with this? You take a lot of income away from a lot of the people. So what would those people say about whether it's cultural appropriation and whether they care? I think it's just always been a thing, and I, I totally believe it to be hypocritical in the sense of not only just the money, I think the money element is definitely important, but I also feel like individuals that if they're not behind it, right? So I feel like when you you don't own the culture, right? So if we're talking about hip hop, we're talking about black, African-American, whatever, we don't own the culture. It's a part of our culture. Right. Right. However, like you said, if someone comes over and they're just like, hey, they come into the hair salon and they're like, hey, you know what? I want to get braids. Right. A white woman or brings her daughter in and they're like, hey, you know, I want to get braids. Or like you said, if it's a situation where you get off the ship, and you're in Jamaica and you get the braids or the dreadlocks. I don't feel like the people at that point in time will say 
is cultural appropriation, especially if they were like, hey, come on over to my stand. I'll give you such and such here because one is putting money. They're going to say, they're gonna two, say it's business. Right. It's business. And then it's also like, well, I'm the one giving permission. Right. So it's not cultural appropriation if it's OK. I'm saying it's OK to do it. Now, now you're putting the other person in a vulnerable position because if they go somewhere else, it's like, oh, it could look like cultural appropriation. But it's okay, like again, because it's money. And then two, someone from that culture or from that, you know, tradition is like, oh, well, I'm gonna, I'm doing it for this particular reason. So that's when it becomes for me, you know, a you know what I mean, a, a conflict and it becomes hypocritical because now one, you don't own it. That individual not an intent, right? That's also something I want to point out. It also depends on intent, because if the person is like, hey, you know what? I'm coming over to this country, I'm coming over to this area, and I want to be fully immersed in it. Right. I want to practice some of those things. That's the whole point of being diverse. Right. Of exploring is that you engage and immerse yourself into other cultures, other races, whatever, what have you. And if that person is intently says, hey, I'm not trying to make a dollar off of this. I just want to truly get engaged or be immersed in this. Then, again, that's the context that we have to really take into consideration. So I don't feel like those examples are because the person is genuinely trying to be involved. They're on the trip. The person is calling them over to the stand and they're like, hey, this would be nice while you're here. Hey, this is some of our practices. Right. But then, like you said, the person has the money aspect. So I feel like that's definitely where it becomes hypocritical, especially when on with the financial aspect of it. Because then it's OK. Right. If you're making money of it, it's a business transaction. And, it, it, you know, and you're benefiting off of it. I mean, I just. I just wanted to raise the question, right? Because sometimes it's cultural appropriation until you're the one selling the dresses, right? Or selling the, the traditional, you know, dress, shirt, whatever it is. You want to mm -hmm. sell a million of them. To, you want everybody wearing them, right? And that person's perspective might be, I'm exporting the, the culture to everybody. It's exposure. It's cultural exposure, it's, it's right? Exactly. I'm breaking that down walls. Right. That might be their, that might be what they're saying, right? Um, so when I, I think the money conversation is important too, right? Because yeah. it's it's going to be important, like, like, put it like this. If Justin Bieber came out with a wine called Juneteenth, cultural appropriation? Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah, sure right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it just, totally. You're right. It feels bad, right? Even yeah. it's 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 right. So now again, if you would you would think that that type of product, you know, would 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 have an individual of color that you know who who would be the brainchild or the founder or the owner, right? But we get into conflicts, right? Because obviously, you know. We live in a in a capitalist society. Anybody can do that. You know what I mean? Um, but again, I, the only reason why I bring it up is because I think it's important for us to look at these situations individually because some of them are absurd. You know what I mean? And when you bring money into the picture, it changes a lot sometimes. And, and I can only think about when I've been on in different places, you know, and I'm like, for those individual vendors, for those people where the money is going directly into their pocket, you know, they might label it a little different. They might say, nah, ain't no cultural appropriation. Yeah, they think about cultural appropriation. They're thinking like, look, man, I gotta pay these bills. <laughs> you at the stand, <laughs> you coming off, you coming off the cruise line, and you're like, hey, you know, no, come over here and come get your hair braided, come get these dresses, all these other different things, 
right? Come get the wine, come get all these other different things because they got to make money. So they're not thinking yeah. about that. You know, so I, it's also a thing where it's like, okay, is it more of the mainstream? It is, is it a certain class of people that are looking at it as, as cultural appropriation as opposed to the people that are trying to make money, you know, different perspective. So I think it's yeah, also man. a thing where, you know, if you are of a certain, you know, I think you should absolutely ask yourself questions, right? So, you know, awareness is key. That's something that we always preach and encourage people to do. If you're going to, you know, practice or display or try to immerse yourself or, or take something that's from, you know, a derivative of a, of a different culture, ask yourself some questions, right? Ask yourself before you go forward and you go get the, you know, the, the dreadlocks or you go get whatever. It's a situation like, hey, you know what? Am, am I borrowing this item, you know, with good intentions, right? Ask yourself that. Like if I was around someone else of that culture, of this ethnicity, would they look at it? Would they be offended, Right. Or, you know, what is, like you said, in context, individual situation, like these are some questions that I would encourage or caution people to ask themselves, like, you know, are you crediting the source or the inspiration behind what you're doing? Because that also becomes an issue with, with cultural appropriation is that you don't give the credit or source of where it's stemming from. Right. If you're trying to play it off like, oh, this is something that you invented. Like right. no, <laughs> you know that. Like no, <laughs> no. You need if you're gonna do stuff. That's a very important thing. Like you need to give credit where credit is due to that tradition, right. to that right. culture. Because, like you said, marginalized. They don't. It's a, it's that catch twenty two. It's a double standard. They don't get the opportunity to move with that tradition or with that you know or that custom the same way people in the majority when they adopt it. So give credit, you know, and then ask yourself like, is this is what I'm doing? If I was around. The person would they be offended? Right. Important question asked. I mean, I, again, I think it's an important conversation, um, and that's why I think the first point that we made that people have to understand before they even approach the individual conversations or the individual like situations is like why people are offended. Now, why people are offended, we in total agreement of because you know there's historical context to that in terms of this fight, in terms of what our identity. Um, but then when you bring the money and the business into it, um, you know, changes the question sometimes. So you got to look at it individually, you know. Absolutely. All right. So uh, staying up with uh, things that have been culturally appropriate or that have been adopted that have. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Jay, you came across a uh, thing about mindfulness. Take us through that, brother. Listen, this this. I just really started hearing about this like two weeks ago. And it was right after we were talking about cultural appropriation in like another context. And this was so interesting to me because I never, I, I thought about it, but I didn't think about it. So let's introduce it. So this came out of Vice. Um, the title of this article is To Some Mindfulness Feels uh, Too Whitewashed to Embrace. So they're basically talking about all of these, uh, you know, mindfulness has been like the craze when it comes to schools, when it comes to mental health, you know, it's in hospitals, it's everywhere. You would almost think it's something new, right? So um, they were just talking about how mindfulness has largely been like in the US, been stripped of its roots. Um, and they were talking about its roots are in Buddhism, right? Um, I'm not gonna try to pronounce it, um, but it's a Buddhist discourse that outlines the physical and mental practice of mindfulness meditation, right? Um, and what they were talking about, the problem is that the mindfulness that's being kind of pushed on the Calm app and Headspace and classrooms, all these different places, it's a commercialized version of it that's kind of stripped down. Um, and all of the spiritual 
elements have been left out, right? Um, and, and what they were talking about, again, they were talking about this as a form of cultural appropriation, right? And if we look at the definition, the marginalized group gets no say, right? Um, and it's funny because like, I, like there's a lot of, a few articles out about this now, but I started, like when I first started hearing about mindfulness and they're talking about present moment and focus, and at the time, you know, I've been doing yoga for a little while. At the time, I was like, it's like, man, this sounds like it sounds like yoga. But right. you know, we just it's just stretching and positions. But I'm like, man, it sounds like yoga. And and that's essentially kind of what they're saying. It's like, not I'm not saying mindfulness isn't a real thing. I'm not saying it's not evidence-based, but what they're kind of saying is you kind of export yoga out of Buddhism strip it of all of the elements because, you know, in terms of the West, you know, when you start bringing in religion and spirituality and trying to sell things, people run. Right. Um, right. And then you give them, you give them that portion, you know, the, the, the present moment focus attention. So I just thought that was interesting. Um, and what do you think? Like when you look at mindfulness now, do you think like this is culturally appropriated, uh, you know, kind of out of, out of this Buddhist, tradition or what do you think how do you feel about it yeah it's it's definitely an, an a la carte thing i think they picked it they picked out what's going to be marketable to it because like you said like even though it has its root in in, in um as far as buddha goes it's also there's also relations or derivatives of in different religions right whether it be christianity whether it be islam whether it be any of these other different denominations like there's a mindfulness element into it. If you look at meditation, meditation is very similar to prayer, right? In a lot of different religions. So it's, I think what they did is that they stripped it down and took the, the pieces of it still beneficial, right? I'm not, not saying and saying that mindfulness is not beneficial because it completely is. But like you said, they took different aspects of things and they made, all right, what's going to be marketable? How can we make this also accessible to everyone on, on different ages, different areas, right? Like you said, schools, hospitals, different job environments, right? All these other different things, how can it be beneficial? And it is, however, you know, you may hear some of the origins of it, um, but a lot of times, you know, it's, it's more centered on, okay, the president and how it's a third wave of the traditional type of CBT, that wave of things, right? So, um, I, I feel like they just really took certain portions of it and said, okay, how can we make this more marketable and, and you know, and appeasing to the general public? Because like you said, when you hear the history, you hear religion aspect of it, people are going to be like, nah, nah. Right. You know, people are more reluctant or more ambivalent to kind of adopt that practice. But so they made it very general and very marketable. But I think like along that line, right, a lot of people are going to hear like what I say and what you're saying and be like, well, you know, it's 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 everywhere. It's evidence based and it's helping people. So, you know, why do you care if it's stripped down? Right. But the, the problem is um, like you got to look at the effect. Right. And how this how how cultural appropriation and these things, the downhill effect, you know, and what I mean by that is like you look at the apps, the tech apps and, you know, who's largely responsible white males. Right. So then we look at the effect. And as they were kind of talking about in the article, you see that going down the line in terms of the languages used in the app, right? The tones of the voices, all of these things are going to impact ultimately who the consumers are, right? So when we look at who are the kind of people that are marketing mindfulness, right? And then we look at 
who in the United States, who are the main consumers of yoga, right? We're talking about college educated white people, right? And then we look at even within that yoga world that I'm in, not having teachers of color, not having a lot of participants of color. This is the downhill effect, right? So maybe this is what you get when you strip things down, right? Quote unquote, when you get this culturally appropriated version, you know, maybe maybe that's why there there isn't as much minority participation. Maybe some of these spiritual elements might draw some of these people in more. I don't know, but what I'm saying is, you know, the statistics in terms of who does yoga and all and mindfulness and who embraces these practices and who are more resistant. I mean, it's clear if you walk into a class and if you look at the statistics. So down the line, that's the effect. Because a lot of people are going to be like, well, it's a great technique. So what do we care? Right. We care because taking out these elements and traditions, right, which are more salient to different people, which happen to be people of color. And then you look at down the line when you when you project this onto the United States, why you don't have certain groups, you know, which happen to be the marginalized groups gravitating towards these practices, you got to look at that relationship is all I'm saying, you know. And it's important that you need to sustain that history element of it, right? You have to like want to keep That's that historical aspect of it because, you know, if you're just going to say, well, we're just going to talk about, you know, these highlight points. And no, you need to also talk about some of the tenets. And so, you know, it's important that practitioners, clinicians such as ourselves, even when, you know, we're trying to facilitate and we're instructing and, and explaining the benefits of mindfulness with our clients is that we also are incorporating the history. And, you know, we don't have to make a whole session, the whole class, but absolutely providing some form of a psychoeducation of where it historically stems from. Because, you know, and I know one, there are so many different forms of mindfulness. There are so many different forms of meditation and all these other different, you know, tenets that are, that they overlap, they're very similar. And each one is different, which I feel like is also a reason why you want to practice or kind of give that education to a client or whoever your audience is of, okay, what particular form of mindfulness are they getting instructed? Because they're not all the same. They're similar, right. but there are so many different forms. You have, you know, kindness and compassion meditation. You have all these other different, you know, orientations that are, spe- you know, specific for certain type stress, depression, like all these other different avenues. It's really important that, you know, it's not, you don't give like this general kind of blanket. Okay. This is mindfulness. This is what it is. And like you said, you give the strip down, water down version and you, educate you know your client because i think that also you know deepens their you know their relationship or deepens also their ability to get fully immersed in it so providing that history to clients and whoever your audience is is very important because they're not all the same even though you know the app and i'm not not shitting on the app you know because the the calm app is, is good i've utilized it um a lot of other different agencies have utilized it but it's also good to have that additional uh historical information you know depending on the mindfulness um orientation that you're using i mean i agree man um listen i think it's a good conversation i I, you know admittedly like i haven't i mean i thought about obviously the article you know but it's still new it's the new idea so you know how I, i i do my ideas are fluid so you know um i may change how i feel about it but um right now i think they have some good points um i'm kind of conflicted because you know i think um i'm i'm kind of conflicted because you know i do see the value in mindfulness you know what i mean um oh. but um 
but my foundation is yoga too. So that that kind of makes me a little bit biased too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just hope that this is a, a conversation people keep talking about because, you know, again, I'm in the yoga classes. So it's like, I see the differences in culture, right? Like I see us not there, you know what I mean? Um, and that, I mean, it doesn't bother me in terms of making me uncomfortable, but it bothers me in terms of um, the benefits that I think a lot of us could benefit from, right? If we look at our communities with high blood pressure and stress and all of these things, you know, yoga, mindfulness, some of these techniques, it's like we're missing out, you know, um, on good interventions. Um, so if, if, if a way to bring more people in is, is, is to market it better, you know, by being including more of the truth about it, you know, in the history, then that's something I think should be done. So, you know, conversation, hopefully we'll continue on that. Okay. Ryan, speaking of ongoing conversations, all right, um, <laughs> Britney Spears. All right. Yep. So in case people aren't familiar with, um, with Britney Spears, the situation, all right, Britney Spears has been placed on a or was placed on a, uh, a temporary conservatorship. OK, and that was used as a temporary emergency measure in 2008. For some people that aren't aware, you know, she was experiencing uh, a lot of different stressful issues, it appeared that she was in crisis. And so a temporary conservatorship was placed on her by her dad. And uh, it appears that if you heard the testimony, because she recently went to court to try to get the, the conservatorship overturned. And again, this started in 2008. This is what this placed on. So we're now 13 years later. All right. Um, and it appears that through this conservatorship that hasn't been overturned, even through multiple attempts, is that it's almost impossible to not connect this to like a larger societal pattern in which, you know, concocted mental health claims have been used, including in, in court proceedings, to uh, sideline inconvenient women. So um, what were your thought? kind of like, I know they use Britney Spears as an example, but what were you thinking just kind of looking at the, the, the history of this element of, you know, of these different well, concocted mental health things? Well, well I, all right, first, let me talk about this, this story, because this to me was like um i know you heard that a lot of people are talking about this man like so you yeah. um i just thought this was very interesting right because obviously like a lot of details we don't know and what makes this so interesting is like you know first of all i mean people have to understand like for every anybody who doesn't you know if you're under a conservatorship you know there's certain conditions, right? Like people who have dementia, people that can't take care of their own affairs, right? Yeah, um, right. The court will issue somebody, put somebody in, in, in charge of their affairs. But like me, I don't think everybody, well, maybe people did, you know, but I didn't understand necessarily the extent that they are in charge of your affairs, right? Um, like the wow. things, first of all, they said she was supposed to be in the temp. She was put in temporary status, I think, in 2008, and it's been 12 years, right? Mm -hmm. Second thing is they were saying, and I think what's making people so uncomfortable with it is how together she had it on the call when she was kind of pleading her case, right? Um, because she had some what seemed like very clear points, and we have to be very careful when we're talking because. The details of the case, you know, and a lot of these details are are, set, are are sealed, right? So there could there could be possibly reasons why she remains under this conservatorship that aren't released, right? And valid reasons. 
But the, the reason why a lot of people are talking about it is because of some of the issues she raised and how lucid she sounded, you know? Um, and some of the, the more ridiculous, I mean, not ridiculous, but, you know, she was kind of talking about how she wanted to have children, right? Um, and, you know, like her her team or the board or her father, you know, like they're in, they, they have say over whether she can have a child, right? Um, but I guess the contradiction, you know, and again, we're not trying to uh, draw equivalency between somebody's ability to earn money and their mental health. Um, but what they raised in this article was all of the things she's been able to balance, right, over the last 17 years, right? A Las Vegas residency, I think 250 performances, generating $160 million, four albums, performing on the X Factor. We're talking about str extremely stressful situations, right? Mm -hmm. And we haven't seen her in the news. We haven't seen any of these things, right? So for people to see all of that and then hear her present her case, I think that's when it brings up the questions and people start getting uncomfortable with it, you know? And then when they look at dad's checkered history and how this can turn into a job for people, it gets uncomfortable, you know? Um, so I don't know how I feel about it is the long answer to a short question because we don't have all the facts, but I'm certainly very uncomfortable with what I see. I'm very uncomfortable with what I see. Yeah, I, I got an opportunity and I don't know if you saw it. She had a, a documentary that came out um, earlier in the year. I think it was on Hulu. Uh, really decent I did. doc. I didn't see it. Um, I didn't see it. Yeah, it it, it kind of details like the whole her her whole story and and everything. And then I mean, it appeared that it was an unbiased thing because I don't think she was involved in it. Um, but I mean, you one the conservatorship. I mean, like you said, you can see why it's typically used for someone that's experiencing a neurocognitive disorder because it takes all of the the decision making out of their hands with everything. Which is what understanding if someone is experiencing dementia, yeah, of course, their judgment and decision making is impaired. So you can see why it's placed for individuals that are experiencing that type of illness. Not so much, again, her. Like, I mean, and it just brings up a huge contradiction, like you mentioned. I mean, like you said, how can someone who's seemingly able to function at a high level, such as a superstar, sold out shows, all these other different things, reality show, X Factor, um, raising the uh, you know um having raising the kids and doesn't seem like there's been any issues at least that's been reported um and then also be unable to take care of herself at the risk that you need this layer of intense protection like it it's just very bizarre and right. then also with the conservatorship it's very very difficult for you to get that overturned which is why it's lasted so long because again it's right. typically used for someone that is experiencing a neurocognitive disorder. And you know and I know that when you experience a neurocognitive disorder, there's no reversing it, right? So that's right. why conservatorship is as strict as it is because once right. you start to experience this impaired judgment and decision-making due to the neurocognitive aspect of it, yeah, it's one way. You only get progressively worse. For right. someone that's in her late 30s, and again, I don't know her, you know, her diagnosis or her mental health history other than what's been reported, um, yeah, like it's completely debilitating. She can't do anything. And again, it's very difficult to get this overturned, which is why it's been 12, 13 years. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's really unfortunate and as far as what terminology and 
you know, I don't know if she was evaluated for, you know, capacity and competency. I, I don't know. I'm not sure of that. I have to, I mean, I saw the, the documentary maybe a few months ago when it was initially aired. Um, but it, I mean, it does definitely seem unfortunate on her part if this isn't the case, right? Is this layer of protection, which you typically don't use for someone, even for individuals that are have been uh, hospitalized on the state level for long term um, treatment, you know, they may have like a beneficiary or they may have a, a guardian, but conservatorship is, is a completely different ballgame. I, I mean, that's an intense layer of protection, um, that's placed upon somebody. So, yeah. um, it seems, uh, very, very bizarre. Uh, I don't know, again, I don't, I don't know if she was evaluated and things, but unfortunately kind of do is we look at the history of, you know, women that have been unfortunately marginalized and taken advantage of, um, and placed in hospitalized due to all these other different unnecessary reasons. Uh, yeah, this is really unfortunate for, if it's, this is unnecessary. I mean, like, again, this is just very bizarre, you know, like how she, how she presented and then. All of these things that we know, it just seems very bizarre. You always got it's always like a caveat because again, the, every a lot is sealed, so we don't have access to, you know, what might have kept this in place so long. But I do think because I think the important part is that she's alleging like abuse of the relationship, so it should be investigated, right? Because she's alleging being like drugged essentially, you know, over-medicated. Um, and she's talking about issues in terms of not being able to kind of weigh in on her counsel and stuff like that, right? The other thing that I thought was interesting in terms of just kind of looking beneath the surface is that um, one thing I, I, I pulled up in, in Cali, they said um, conservators fees are typically 50 to $100 an hour to properly handle or delegate or delegate their personal care and or financial duties to the protected person, right? You're running their life, yeah. right? So you could work, you could be working all day. Like, think about it. Like, you know how quick you could run up a thousand dollar bill? You could take somebody to the doctor and run up a, a, a doctor visit could take five hours driving them, this and that. You could run up a $500 bill in half a day. You could have a rack by dinner time. Take them shopping. Yeah. So all I'm saying is the potential for abuse is immense. And she's alleging all kinds of abuse. So, I again, mean, it's, not, it's not out the run because she's paying for that. Right. And, th- and within this conservatorship, all of those fees are being paid by the money she's making on the road. Like she I think it was a situation where she was kind of forced to do some of these shows that she didn't want to because the money is, she's paying for these things. Right. Like the representation for the conservatorship and her own lawyers, like you said, they're running up. Like she's paying for that. Think about it. He gets paid. Think about how long it takes to do Britney Spears taxes for the year after she done worked at Vegas and all these places, right? All these different income streams. Mm-hmm. He gets paid to go sit with the accountant. Allegedly, potentially, right? How long do you think that takes? You sit there for seven hours. It's not your money. If the if the calculation comes out wrong, probably not your responsibility on some level. But you getting paid. You sit there seven hours. You make seven hundred dollars. Right. All I'm saying is, it's bizarre. You know what I mean? And 
it creates a situation where it's a it's more than a job for somebody. It could be a piggy bank, could be. So it's one of those things where I'm very surprised that there's not like an independent body in each state that monitors everybody. That's not anybody's family. Independent. I don't know how you would establish that, but these seems like these are the people that we that are vulnerable, right? There's a whole show about it on Netflix. It's it's a it's a crazy show. The woman cleans people out. That's all she does. Is is you know, it's sign over their rights and clean them out. I forget the name of it, but it's 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 just a lot of uh red flags, you know. So it's, yeah, you, know. I, I, you know, my question is, you know, and, and we'll we'll wrap up soon is that I was thinking one in order for you to get conservatorship, is it typically reserved for the elderly or for individuals that are experiencing, you know, kind of like what what evaluation was entailed in this? Like, who did this, right? Like, you know, like, what was, what terminology, what assessments, what things were utilized in order for her to get this, where it's just like, hey, you know what? She can no longer make decisions for herself. Well, okay, well, she this- is incapable of doing, of making these decisions. And so we're going to place this conservatorship. And again, I don't know her history, other than what was, you know, in the media and, and, and detailed in the documentary. And it, I mean, she definitely appeared to be experiencing or to be in crisis. However, well, I mean, saying. there was a lot in the, there was a lot in the media. So the temporary thing, I don't think was it was necessarily extreme, even from what we were seeing in the media. I don't know. I'm just we just speculating as two people. But tw- 13 years is different. You know, you, you understand. But again, like you said, if somebody's going through a crisis, crisis is end. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's uh, it doesn't definitely see seem like it's on the up and up. Um, again, I don't know Brittany. I'm not familiar with her her treatment or anything. Um, I I do hope that this gets overturned and she's able to, you know, get back to get this possibly overturned and have a, a better quality of life because it doesn't seem like anyone, you know, should have to be experiencing this unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, so, um, but yeah, it's it's unfortunate that. If this is being used with malintent and it's being used inappropriately or being weaponized by the father and whoever else is involved, it's unfortunate that you're using mental health to do this, right? Like we said, if you're concocting all these different, you know, and utilizing these mental health symptoms or you have someone that's 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 on your side that's finagling assessments and, and all of like that's that's the unfortunate part, right? Because then it makes you it makes people distrust the mental health can, you know, the system, the community and things of that nature. So that's where I, I hope, I don't know how they got to this point and what, what else was involved in making that decision, but I'm hoping, and it's just really disheartening if lies and other different un, untruths and things were utilized just to have this conservatorship, not only placed on it, but to have it maintained, right? Because I, I'm hoping that there was someone that that's coming in and evaluating her because like you said, she sounded very lucid. She'd been operating on a you know, on a pretty high functioning level, you would hope that someone kind of steps in and says, okay, let's see where we're at now. I don't know. Um, I'm just hoping that someone's not weaponizing the mental health and and utilizing it to, you know, harm this person. So, I mean, something we'll have to continue to monitor. Yep. Definitely got to, got to continue to monitor it, but you know, it's a good story. I'm sure it's not going to go away because there's been a lot of celebrity support. So it's going to be in the news. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so episode 19 in the books. I may have said episode 18 earlier, but it's Thursday, guys, so give me a break, all right? I get lost, and uh, numbers are hard, all right? So um, definitely episode 19. We appreciate everybody for tuning in, for watching. Um, You know, absolutely continue to listen, watch, and subscribe where you can get all your podcasts and iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, all these things. Also, YouTube. So please continue to subscribe Um, and absolutely email us at the Black Psychologist Podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear your comments. We want to hear your ideas and your questions. So please continue to send, you know, your uh, your videos and your questions and things in. Jay, anything else before we get out of here? Nah, you know, as always, we you know we want to thank everybody for tuning in um, and the support. Um, and just please continue, you know, share the videos, uh, leave comments, and definitely send in uh, the questions. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, Jay and I are definitely interactive. You know, so whether you're, it's on the you're leaving comments on YouTube or via email. Jay and I, we love interacting with everybody. You know, we love having questions and having this dialogue and conversation. So, uh, yeah, continue to send them in, flood them in. All right. Jay, uh, anything else? My brother, absolutely a pleasure, you know, uh, talking to you. Hopefully you get some self-care in this weekend. And uh, that's everything, bro. All right, my brother. I'm going to talk to you next week. All right, man. All right.